All right. Well, good morning. We'll go ahead and get started here. This is week 11 of this equipping class on systematic theology. So, and if you hear a little bit of a uh, little huskiness in my voice, it's because I went to the Razorback game last night and screamed my head off at an exciting game. Anybody else go to the game? All this section. Yeah. Yeah. Much, much needed win last night. So, um, but anyway, yeah, so we are, this is week 11, as I said, out of 12. Um, so we have reached our final topic, which we're going to cover this week and next week, and that is on the work of Christ, the work of Christ. Okay, so first thing is the book giveaway. So the book that we're giving away this morning, I have to say, is one of the best books I've ever read. Okay, so that's a, that's a strong endorsement. It is called Pierce for Our Transgressions. And the subtitle is Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. Okay, how about that subtitle? Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. So uh, this book is, I think the content of it is incredible, but I think just the way that the book is written, it's just like, to me, it's an example of how to write a book. Because he, that these guys, there's, there's three different authors but they put forth this really strong, comprehensive biblical argument on penal substitution, which if you're not familiar with that term, that's, we're going to talk a lot about it today. Um, but they also do a really good job of really fairly representing the opposing views. Um, and they just, they just do a really good job interacting with that in a, in a, in a way that's gracious and charitable, but yet really faithful to the Bible. Um, so yeah, who would like this? Kellen. There you go. It's, uh, yeah. No, it's, it's great. I, I would give it my, my highest recommendation. And we'll, we'll talk some about this, but it, it may come as a shock to many of you, but there are actually professing Christians who take the position that Jesus' death didn't actually accomplish anything that it was actually just a demonstration of love. and it's, they have, There's different forms of what they call the moral influence view, where basically he just he offered the ultimate example of what it means to love and sacrifice for others, and that in seeing his great sacrifice, that people would be drawn to the love of God through just seeing his great sacrifice, but that it didn't actually do anything. That they would call they would call the penal substitution view cosmic child abuse. That God, if God were to actually crush His Son and do it in order to be a substitute, anyway, um, it's very dangerous and it's it's more pervasive than you might think. And so this stuff, even though much of this is going to seem hopefully obvious to many of us. Um, there, there, there are big sections of, uh, you know, professing Christians that would hold this view. But anyway, okay. So Pierce for our transgressions. Um, so as I said, we're looking at the work of Christ today and next week. And you know, this is not just the climax of this class, but I would say this is the climax of Christian theology. 
So we see in Scripture that the death of Christ and all his redemptive work is the most significant, valuable, and profound event in human history. Okay, so up to this point in this class, we've talked about the Word of God and why any study of theology must begin there with God's authoritative and inerrant Word. And then we considered who God is, his triune nature, and his spotless character. We talked about how he made the world for his glory and humankind as the pinnacle of his creation to represent his rule on earth. Um, We've seen how God governs and directs all of history by his sovereign hand and how human beings rebelled against God's reign. Um, But we've seen how God, who's rich in mercy, sent his son uh, to deal with that rebellion. And so, um, last two weeks, Cliff covered the person of Christ, and we saw that Jesus Christ now is and forever will be one person with two natures, right? So, he's fully God, um, he's fully man, um, and so that's who Jesus is. Now, we're going to talk about what did he come to do, what did he come to do? And so, you see at the top of your handout there, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's, in a nutshell, what he came to do. We're going to look at that. And, um, you know, it's, it's providential, too, that Brad is going to be preaching in the main service from, you know, a portion of Isaiah that includes Isaiah 53, which really, I mean, I was reading it this week, and... I was looking for like a quote that could kind of sum up like the work of Christ because it's just like, how do you put the magnitude of the work of Christ into words? Um, But then I I came across Isaiah 53 and was reading through that and I thought, maybe that's the best way to open. Like, let's just look at Isaiah 53. Like, let's just read it. That'll be a good way to kick this off and it'll also be a good way to kind of prepare our hearts for the main service. So if you'll turn to Isaiah 53, I'll actually start in verse 4 and read down through the end of the chapter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay, so as we open here, I'll start with a question. Why? This is such an obvious question that you're going to say, well, I don't even know where to begin. There's so many. But just, just throw out some things. Why is the study of the work of Christ important? I think we all accept that it is. So what are some reasons why you think it's crucially important? Yeah, right. It's important to get this right, right? Yeah, because everything hinges on this. Our eternity hinges on this. So if we misunderstand what Jesus came to do, then we will miss out on the salvation that he accomplished and we will also mislead others about literally the most important news in history. Right? Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And this is fundamentally why we gather. Right? Because we gather to worship Christ because he's worthy of worship and honor for what he's done in his work. And nothing should fire our affections of our hearts just any more than remembering the price that he's paid for us, right? So all theology is practical, but I would say none more so than the work of Christ. Because whatever your struggles, whatever your temptations or pain that you're going through, the sacrificial suffering of Jesus and his victorious resurrection provide an unshakable ground of confidence and hope for us. Amen? Okay. So, let's look, we'll, we'll do an overview of the work of Christ and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the details. So, one helpful way to summarize Christ's work would be to, to look at it through his three offices. Okay, the three offices that he fulfills, which is prophet, priest, and king. So that's a great way to summarize it. Um, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's the prophet who spoke God's word and who was himself the word made flesh. So we know God through Jesus Christ. We see that in Hebrews 1, first two chapters. Uh, in these days, God has spoken to us by a son. So he's the ultimate prophet. He's also the ultimate high priest who mediates a new covenant between God and his people. And so we're reconciled to God through Christ as our high priest. That's what essentially the book of Hebrews is about. Um. And he's also the great king of the universe who rules with peace and justice. 
We're citizens of the kingdom of God through Christ and through his work. And he inaugurated his kingdom in his first coming. He's going to consummate the kingdom at the end of time. See that in Revelation 19? And so it's a, a great way to kind of think about Christ's work as a whole would be through these three offices. And we should praise him for each of those things, that he's our prophet, priest, and king. We need no other. He's sufficient in his revelation, in his sacrifice, and in his rule. Okay? Then another way to summarize the work of Christ and the way that we're going to kind of go about it through this class over the next couple of weeks is to consider Jesus in what theologians call the states of Christ. There's two states. His state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. Okay? So, and then there's one classic Christological passage where we see both states of Christ, and that's in Philippians chapter 2. I think it'd be worth turning there also and just looking at this, because it's going to kind of serve as an outline for our course, would be Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. So there we see that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's his humiliation. And his humiliation would include his incarnation, his perfect sinless life, and then, of course, his sacrificial death. And then Paul goes on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that kind of summarizes his exaltation, which would include his resurrection, his ascension, and his session, what we call his session. That's his being seated on the heavenly throne at the right hand of God. And then his return, finally his return, would be included in his exaltation, okay? So, so today we're going to consider his humiliation, and next week we'll look at his exaltation. Um, and we're going to use the first part of this Philippians 2 passage as our outline in looking at the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in his state of humiliation. Okay, any questions or comments on any of that before we jump into looking at Christ's humiliation? No? Okay. All right. Well, let's first, we're going to look at point one in his humiliation is his incarnation. And this is that being born in the likeness of men in Philippians 2. So why did the Son of God take on human flesh? Well, it was for us and for our salvation, right? Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 says, Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, I mean, you could just, you could teach our whole lesson from just that passage, but specifically there we see the incarnation, right? And Cliff talked about this last week when he talked about the humanity of Christ. So we won't go into detail into that um, here, but I think it's worth just kind of stopping to just soak that mystery in that God stepped into his own creation in order to save them. So the Son of God was born as a baby to be our new Adam. And in his humanity, the infinite one got tired and he slept. The all-powerful one felt our weaknesses. The all-present one took on a finite human body. And he shared fully in our humanity in order to serve as our representative and our priestly mediator before God the Father. I mean, that's, I mean, that alone, the incarnation, is an incredible truth to try to wrap your mind around. But he didn't only take on our humanity, but letter B there in your handout is he also lived a sinless life. He lived a sinless life. This is that he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's that part in Philippians 2. Theologians also call this Christ's active obedience. His active obedience. So because the first Adam disobeyed, Jesus, the new Adam, has fully obeyed the Father. So he's the, only, he's the one who came to fulfill all righteousness, right? Matthew 3. And through faith, our or his righteous life is actually credited to us or imputed to us. We go back to Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So his, his righteous life, his sinless life, is now credited to us, and God treats us as though we lived his perfect life. Does that give you comfort? In what ways does that give you comfort? Jesus' sinless life being credited to you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What else?
Yeah. And that's how we see how, how practical theology really is. I mean, how understanding God, the way he's revealed himself in his word, really matters for everyday life. It matters for our peace and our comfort and joy. And Yeah, and, and how about also just knowing that Jesus understands our weaknesses? Because he's, he's felt the pull of temptation. He's felt that attraction to sin. He's felt it firsthand. So he understands what we're going through. And so because of that, he's able to be a sympathetic and merciful high priest because he's actually gone through what we, what we go through. So the book, we gave away the book Gentle and Lowly last week. And, um, you know, he just, the, the thesis of that book is essentially from Matthew 11, which is that Christ in his very heart, in his very being, is gentle and lowly. You know, he doesn't reprimand us when we're tempted, like a football coach or something that tells us, you know, like, you got to get your head in the game, come on. You know, like he's, he's tender, he's gentle, he comforts us, he uh, invites us to find our help in him. He welcomes us gladly when we admit our total dependence upon him. Okay, so his his sinless life, uh, and then point C, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, is his sacrificial death. His sacrificial death. So as incredible as his incarnation and sinless life were, they didn't complete his work, right? It was his sacrificial death that, that completed his work. So in Mark 8, as soon as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, uh, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So that's what he came to do. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is sometimes called his passive obedience. His passive obedience. Not in the sense that he was some victim of the circumstances, um, but that he willingly obeyed the Father's plan by submitting to the penalty of death that our sins deserved. So, what did Christ's death accomplish what did it accomplish most fundamentally what did it accomplish took us from death to life yeah paid for our sins it did yes glory to god absolutely everything is for god's glory ephesians 1 Um, if we had to sum it up in one word, most fundamentally, Christ's death provided atonement for us. Atonement. Okay, so what's atonement? Paying off of debt? Yeah. Yeah, it has that sense. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Any other... Any other thoughts on that? How you would sum up atonement? Hmm. Yeah. 
cleansing, purifying. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely there. Um, so it refers to, specifically it refers to restoring a right relationship between God and man. Okay, and it also has this connotation of, of the sacrifice that is made or the price that is paid in order for that right relationship to be possible. Okay, that's how you can think of atonement is just the, the restoring of the relationship between God and man and the sacrifice that was paid to, to make that happen. So this is the predominant way that the Bible describes the death of Christ, and so we're going to spend most of the rest of our time talking about atonement. Uh, and I would just say, just make a note that the New Testament uses a lot of kind of overlapping um, themes and, and metaphors and images to describe the atonement and what it accomplished for us. So, so recognize these categories are not mutually exclusive, okay? So they, there's lots of, of overlap and carryover in all of this, but, but I think it's helpful to th- think in these categories of all the different kind of specific things that this atonement accomplished for us. So let's start with the necessity of atonement, the necessity of atonement. So why do you think atonement is necessary? Yeah. We're sinful, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's the reality of sin. What else? The reality of sin combined with what? The reality of what? Yes. Yep. God's holiness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's too pure to look upon evil. He can't have a relationship because he's pure, he's spotless, he's holy. He can't have a relationship with dirty, filthy, sinful rebels, okay, without something dramatic happening in order to reconcile that relationship. So the reality of sin and God's holiness are what make atonement necessary. So... You know, you remember a few weeks ago we talked about the problem of sin. So we stand guilty before God as those who are represented by Adam. And we have confirmed our guilty sentence by our filthy deeds. Okay? John 3.36 says, The wrath of God remains on all who are outside of Christ. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath, objects of God's wrath. Okay, and this is because God is good. His law is righteous. His holiness is pure. His justice is totally right. So he won't allow evil and wickedness to go unpunished. He's not going to just sweep sin under the rug. Okay? And so he, we see this going back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament that just really graphically illustrated the necessity of atonement, right? Because animals were slaughtered daily as prescribed by in the book of Leviticus, the sacrificial system. I mean, you think about it, and you study the book of Leviticus, and you read it, and you think about what faithful Israelites had to do day after day, year after year, 
just to maintain right relationship with God. I mean, it was a bloodbath. Like, animals slaughtered, dead carcasses everywhere. I mean, and when you think about that, and you think about the reality of, okay, every time I snap at my spouse, I've got to then, okay, go find an animal. It's got to be the right kind of animal. I've got to take it to the priest. He's got to slit its throat right there in front of me on the altar. Like, all the time. So when you think about that, what that was doing for us is showing like, okay, sin is serious and God's holiness is really pure. And so death and blood are necessary in order to atone for sin. We just, that's, that's what we see. And so if, you're, if, you get, if you get hung up in your Bible reading plan in about you know, February or March in Leviticus, and you're just like, what is the point of all this? Think about the fact that that was all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that Christ made once and for all for you that never again had to be repeated. So all your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross, and you don't have to do that to be right with God. Okay, so that leads us to the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. And so you'll, you'll see in this section of your handout, we've got this statement that kind of summarizes the nature and result of the atonement. And that statement is this. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins by dying in our place on the cross, fully absorbing God's holy wrath, fully covering the guilt of our sin, and fully cleansing us from the sin that separated us from God. And so there's a part of this statement that touches on each aspect of the, of the atonement that we'll look at here. Okay, so the first, uh, first point in the nature of the atonement is that Christ's atoning death was penal. That's not a very spiritual sounding word. Penal. Um, what does that mean? Nick. Yep. Nick's a legal expert. He understands what penal means. Yeah. That's right. So penalty. Penalty comes from that root word penal. It has this idea of punishment. So... So he suffered the penalty that our sins had incurred. The wages of sin is death, right? And he paid that. So it's got, you know, it's got this idea of punishment. There's a legal connotation here. There's, there's overlap with justification, which we'll talk about later. But Isaiah 53 that we read earlier and that Brad will be preaching from today. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So that piercing, that crush, that crushing, that's the penal aspect of this. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So it was not only 
His death was not only penal, but it was also substitutionary. Substitutionary, which carries the idea that he died in our place. It was for us. It was instead of us. So this idea of substitution was part of Israel's history from the beginning as well. We see this in the Old Testament. You remember Isaac and Abraham. When Abraham went to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, and he raised the knife, and then what did he see? He saw a ram that could be a substitute. Something that could be killed in the place of Isaac. Also, remember the Exodus where the lamb was slain instead of or in the place of the oldest son of each family. That's why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. That's why Jesus died during Passover. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the, the clearest statement on this. For our sake, He, God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he did it for our sake, in our place. Uh, one, if you look on your handout, one of, the, one of the books that we've recommended is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Classic work on the work of Christ. And in it, his quotes, he has a quote that says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And as the, the hymn so powerfully puts it, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood, Sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Okay. So Christ's atoning death was both penal and substitutionary. Okay. Going back to our statement there, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins by dying in our place on the cross. Any questions or thoughts on penal substitution? Kellen's going to know all about it when she reads Pierce for our transgressions. Yes. I don't believe so. No, and you know, they celebrate Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, but I don't think there's any, unless somebody else is familiar with a sect of Judaism that I'm not, where they're actually following the Old Testament, which to me, I think, well, if you're going to be consistent, like, you, sh you should be making sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Otherwise, what atonement's being made? Day of Atonement, what does it mean? I don't know. Um... But, no, to answer your question, not that I know of, unless someone else may know something different, but. Yeah, yeah, right. But, right, more as a celebration, not as like an offering for sin, right? Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Any other questions or comments before we move into the results of the atonement? 
Okay, so what is the result of the atonement? What did this penal substitutionary death accomplish for us, for God's people? Well, for one, it accomplished propitiation. The propitiation of God's wrath. That's a big word, propitiation. What does that mean? Anybody want to take a stab at propitiation? Yeah, an appeasement. Satisfaction of wrath. Right? Meaning God's righteous anger against sin has been resolved and removed by Christ's sacrifice. So, we see in the Old Testament, in the the prophets describing God's anger against wickedness as him pouring out the cup of his holy wrath. And then for all who trust in Christ, Christ drank that cup on the cross for us. He experienced God's rightly terrible opposition against sin, the opposition that we deserved to know eternally. He drank that cup for us. Which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he was sweating drops of blood, praying that this cup could pass. Because he had the weight of the wrath of God against all the sin of everyone who would ever believe on his shoulders. So this is what Paul refers to in Galatians 13 when he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So the obedient one absorbed the curse that was due to disobedient sinners like us. And probably the clearest passage on this uh, concept of propitiation is in Romans 3, 23 through 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, and as we talked about, the shedding of blood is necessary for atonement. And Jesus Christ is that blood sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And we should remember that while propitiation is necessary because God is holy, it's possible because God is supremely gracious and loving. Okay? Propitiation is necessary because God is holy, but it's possible because He's gracious and loving. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so that's propitiation. And then Christ's death also accomplished expiation. Expiation. Who knows what expiation means? 
Yeah, removal. Removal of guilt. Removal of, of sin, yeah. Even a covering. His, his death covers the guilt for our sin. So we're no longer guilty before God, but we're declared innocent. John the Baptist said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes it away. The law brings condemnation because it exposes how we've fallen short of God's standards. But Colossians 2.14 says that God forgave all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he canceled that debt. He's removed our sin. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Another Leviticus reference is um, the scapegoat. You remember the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 where there would be two goats on the Day of Atonement and the high priest would, one of them they would sacrifice right there, but the other one they would put their hands on and basically put all the sins of the nation onto this goat. Poor goat. I mean, he's got the sins of Israel laid upon him by Aaron and then sent off into the wilderness as a picture of we're taking the sins, we're placing it here, and we're getting rid of it. We're getting it out of here. That's expiation. So, not only this, but Christ's death also brought about our purification. So we've got propitiation, expiation, purification. What do we mean by that? Cleansed, yeah, cleansed of sin. Nick, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, filtration, I like that one. That's good. Um, Theologians sometimes call this positional sanctification. Positional sanctification, meaning that we've been cleansed and kind of set apart as acceptable to God. That's right, yeah. We're not just pronounced not guilty. We're also then made righteous, made clean, made spotless, and set apart as, okay, yes, this is acceptable to me. So we're no longer stained by sin. We've been washed, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Um, Hebrews 9.14 says, the blood of Christ purifies our conscience so that we now serve the living God. So this is positional sanctification um, being distinct from practical sanctification. So practical sanctification is just our our day-to-day growing in our walk with Christ being made more and more like him, being made less sinful kind of on a day-to-day basis in a, in a sense. Um, that's practical sanctification. Positional sanctification is a one-time 
event, a one-time declaration of we have been declared clean and pure and acceptable to God. Any thoughts or questions on any of this? Aaron? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's. I, I would say it's. I would say it's both and, and I think these things are. Yeah, th- there's a lot of overlap in these thing, in these metaphors, and but I think there's a sense in which there's a one-time event when you're regenerated, you're made new, you repent and believe and you are made clean and pure from your sin and acceptable to God, and nothing is going to separate you from that. No matter what happens in your life, um, you belong to God forever from that point. And that's, that's this. That's the purification that we're talking about. That's the positional sanctification. But there is also a sense in which, practically, we are being sanctified. We are being made more into the likeness of Christ. We're being made less and less like ourselves. We're being made more and more like Jesus. We're putting off sin. We're putting on, you know, practical holiness, practical righteousness. Um, so that's a progressive work that happens throughout our lifetime. I would say so, yes. Yeah. Frank. Yeah. Mm. But not that his righteousness went to us. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you can fall off both sides of the horse too, right? You can have those who they think, well, I made a decision, I prayed a prayer, so I'm positionally sanctified. And then practical sanctification is out the window because they don't think they need to repent of sin. They don't think they need to take it seriously. Their walk with Christ. They just think, hey, like I'm in. So I can live however I want. And so there's, yeah, there, there's ways to neglect one part of this doctrine to, uh, you know, to the overemphasis of the other. Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say definitively, but I would say just, just based on like understanding stuff from like that book that we gave away, I would say largely they have a very low view of sin. So people who take that position, the moral influence view of Christ's death, just have a very low view of sin. And they just think sin is actually not that big of a deal. And that God is loving, so he just overlooks it, you know? And so they just don't see that all of this is necessary. Like, they would probably have no category for Leviticus and that sacrificial system and really trying to understand the implications of that. They just kind of, I I think, just think, well, you know, God is loving, he's compassionate, um... He knows we're sinful, he understands, and he just overlooks it. Right, and God's holiness. Yeah, yeah. Sean. Yeah, right. Yeah. But necessarily, that's, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yep. Okay. We've uh, we're running low on time, so we're gonna we're gonna move through this last part pretty quickly. Um, but I would just say, just practically thinking, thinking about the atonement. I mean, if you're ever tempted to doubt or forget Christ's love for you, look at his penal substitutionary atonement. So when he went to the cross, he had you in mind. You know, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he prayed for those who will believe in me. Okay, and that's you. That's me. So, you know, like we said, he sweat drops of blood in the garden because he knew he was about to take the punishment for your sins. And he's got holes in his hands that are there right now and will be there forever that are a sign of his love for you and for me. So, I mean, there's just, there's so much devotional capital that you can get from studying this doctrine. I would encourage you to do that. Okay, so last section. Um, As I said earlier, the New Testament describes Christ's death using these overlapping terms and images And so we spent most of our time on substitutionary atonement, but I want to look at four other important and wonderful aspects of what he did for us on the cross. Okay, and the first one is justification. Justification, which is the idea that Christ is our legal substitute. So scripture, when it talks about justification, is using the language of the law court to convey our salvation. So we're guilty before God's judgment seat, but Christ takes our sentence. And as a result, we're declared innocent. And not only that, but as Sam pointed out earlier, we're not just declared innocent, but Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account or imputed to us. So he takes on our rap sheet. He takes it for himself. And then God, who is the judge, treats us according 
to his righteous and innocent standing before him. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 11. It highlights how the suffering servant would make many to be accounted righteous because he would bear their iniquities. And so by providing Christ for our justification, God vindicates his justice while at the same time showing marvelous mercy to sinners. You know, Romans 3, verse 26, talking about Christ's death, says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, pretty incredible to think about the fact that he could maintain his justice, maintain his holiness perfectly, and still be gracious and merciful to wicked sinners. And the only way he could have done that is the way he did it. It's the only way it could have happened. So, you know, like Sam was pointing out about proponents of the moral influence view and about their low view of sin and how God can just sweep, sweep sin under the rug. But if we think about it in these terms, like the, the terms of a judge in a courtroom, I mean, imagine if your family had been brutally murdered by someone. And that person goes to stand before the judge, and the judge is like, you know what, I'm just too merciful. I'm too compassionate to punish you. I'm going to let you go. Like, nobody would go, what a great judge. What a loving judge. Nobody would say that. Because we understand justice. We understand that a payment has to be made. A punishment has to be meted out. A good judge does that. But this judge, instead of punishing us for what we deserved, found a way to punish his own son in our place. And it was one sacrifice, once for all, that never had to be repeated for all who would ever believe. Okay, so the next benefit is redemption. Christ is also our redeemer. Here, the scripture uses the imagery of the slave market. Okay? So we're slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves from our bondage. And our only hope is that Christ would purchase our freedom. That's redemption. Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this redemption is the payment that God himself demands because of his justice. So our sin has locked us into captivity of his judgment. But Christ's blood is what releases us from this captivity. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so practically this just means we belong to Christ now. He's our redeemer. He's our master. 
We're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You were bought with a price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And Satan can lie all he wants, but he has no power over us, and sin has no claim on us. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption. But we're not only set free from sin and death, but we enjoy a new relationship with God. And that brings us to reconciliation. Reconciliation. So the Bible doesn't only describe our salvation in terms of justice, redemption and sacrifice but also in terms of a relationship so we were god's enemies but now in christ we're his adopted children and because we've been reconciled to him we no longer stand before god as a righteous condemning judge but as a tender and loving father who hears and answers our prayers and he cares for us and blesses us all because we've been reconciled to him And again, Christ's substitution is at the heart of our reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And I would say one implication of this reconciliation to God as our Father is that we're all united as brothers and sisters now in His family, in His household. So there's a vertical reconciliation that has taken place and a horizontal reconciliation that's taken place among all those who believe in Him. So Jew and Gentile, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, Ephesians 2.14 says, Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So both vertical and horizontal hostility has been broken and has been done away with by the death of Christ. And so finally... The substitutionary death of Christ not only reconciles us to God, but it brings us into a glorious state of triumph and hope. And that's our last benefit that we're going to discuss, and that is victory. Christ is our victor. By his death and resurrection, Jesus conquers Satan and sin and death on our behalf. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is, in Christ and in His victorious death. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a good place for us to close today because the victory of Christ is closely tied not only to his death, but also to his resurrection. And that's where we're going to be next week in looking at his exaltation. 
because everything that we've seen today about his death would actually be meaningless if it weren't for the fact that he rose from the dead on the third day. So that's why the atonement, justification, redemption, reconciliation, victory, all of those are rock solid and guaranteed because of his resurrection. And because he conquered death and rose so that all who are united to him by faith can share in his new life. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Final questions or comments before we close? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, that's a great illustration, because in that moment, you understand justice, you understand a sense of justice, you understand hatred of sin, you understand all those things, and just one little grain of sand uh, compared to all the sin that God has had to endure and that Christ paid for, so... Yeah, it's good. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we don't even know how to put into words um, our gratitude for the work of Christ and what it accomplished for us. Um, Lord, we just find ourselves at a loss even trying to describe the magnitude uh, of this incredible um, redemption that you have provided for us. Um, we're just so thankful to be justified, to be reconciled, um, to have a substitute uh, that paid for um, our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so now, because of Christ, uh, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in him. And we're just so grateful for that. Uh, Lord, grateful even to uh, be able to hear uh, from your word in Isaiah and the suffering servant in the main service and uh, how we'll get to consider uh, even more about what you've done for us through Christ. And just uh, pray for Brad as he preaches that. Pray for us that we would have uh, open hearts and listening ears for that message as well. And we just lift it all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.